Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. The term borderline personality disorder is often tossed about without sufficient specificity. In fact, sometimes there is even a negative or pejorative quality to the label. But things are changing. Now there are even suggestions that a genetic factor may be operating in its etiology. Dr. John Gunderson is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard University and also does research at McLean Hospital in Massachusetts. Before we begin, I do also want to say that this is a very broad and complex topic, and there is so much information that we really can't even begin to get to in this short interview. But I do want to note that he has written a book called Borderline Personality Disorder, a Clinical Guide, and it is published by the American Psychiatric Society. It's available at www.appi.org. Dr. Gunderson, thank you so much for being with us. Where do we even begin There seems to be increased scientific understanding of what a borderline personality is, but let's define it a little bit for the general audience. What is a borderline personality? Borderline personality is a disorder which is surprisingly common, though public awareness is not very high and it's underutilized within the mental health professions. I describe it to patients and to their families as a disorder characterized by people who grow up feeling that their needs have not been met, and that their hopes for a future depend upon some form of exclusive relationship with another person. That's a demand within a relationship which is not going to be met, and it leads to their having a dilemma that either that what they want is impossible and that they're something wrong with them, or the people who are not providing it are cruel and there's something wrong with them. If they think it's the problem is outside, they get inappropriately angry about what might appear to the outside to be a modest slight. If they think the problem is within them, they get self-punitive and oftentimes do deliberate acts of self-harm, cutting most characteristically, but also can be burning or other forms of deliberate self-harm. If they feel like they're alone, then there's a disconnection with the world such that they feel that they don't exist. And that is begets desperate behaviors, sometimes sexuals, oftentimes with uh, drugs and alcohol that are have disinhibiting effects which in effect get other people involved with them again. One of the things that surprises me is that the statistics are showing that it's, it exists between in maybe five or six percent of the population. I think a lot of people don't realize that it is that common. Even I didn't realize it was that common. There have not been great epidemiological studies until the one you mentioned, which came out two years ago and had a prevalence of 5.9%. I would have thought that it was probably 2 to 3%. One of the reasons that it was higher than I thought is that it turns out that it's as common in males as it is in females, but in clinical settings, it's almost always 75 to 80% female. So I had thought that was representative of the general population. I think male borderlines are more apt to go into the forensic system or to be treated in substance abuse programs, and that's why there's been a misrepresentation. I I tend to agree with you very much because I see a lot of people in the jails, and I do suspect the borderline diagnosis is um, significantly underused. 
You made an interesting point, though, earlier today when you were speaking about how there seems now to be a genetic component developing to this condition. And I must say that as I listen to this and as I read about it, my own training, which goes back a, a number of years, is the draw. There's a draw back to it being purely psychoanalytic, there some trauma and nothing more. And all we had to deal with was undoing the trauma and treating it that way. But your data is very different and it's very exciting. Yes. Uh, it's not specifically my data, but there is very strong data that this is a disorder which is has a significant level of heritability, probably more than another condition such as major depression, for example, though less than, say, schizophrenia. This has revolutionized our way of thinking about the disorder, which has been as a character problem where you need to discipline and reform people who behave poorly Instead now, the same behavioral problems, the same interpersonal demands can be viewed through a different lens. These are people who have some innate hypersensitivity, some innate inability to regulate feelings and impulses. It's a much more sympathetic view of their problems. And it, it should translate amongst treaters and amongst families into a more charitable attitude towards them. One of the things also that intrigues me about this is that there is such a sense of emptiness when you treat someone who is a borderline. It, and it can suck all the energy out of a doctor and out of the family. But it's the name itself. Where does borderline come from? It, it almost doesn't sound psychiatric. <laughs> well, Haga Pekiskel, famous psychiatrist, once said it was an adjective in search of a noun. And he always thought the noun was that it was really a form of affective disorder, or mood disorder. The term originated because it was a question at that time, this is back in the 1930s, whether these very disruptive patients were psychotic or not psychotic. And that was the question back then. And it sort of persisted in that realm until the late 1960s, early 1970s. These were some atypical form of psychosis. They weren't really that psychotic but they were certainly very seriously disturbed, and they drove their therapist crazy. So the term borderline came out of that context. I think there's something fair about it, and that reflects the degree to which these patients are hard to characterize. They fluctuate so broadly in their phenomenology they can have lapses in their reality testing, but otherwise, some other times seem so coherent and capable. They can be very functional and very dysfunctional. And it's very hard to characterize something that is such a moving target. And the, the borderline term captures that. One of the things that also is uh, connected so often to someone who is labeled as a borderline is that they can't stand ambiguity. Yes. It is incredible. Yes. Yeah, so that sort of reflects this borderline thing. is a curious thing that they, the problem, the term borderline almost captures their inability to, ca to stand ambiguity, uncertainty, anything marginal or partway. Their thinking is black and white. The diagnosis sort of captures that. So what do we do for them? I, I, again, my own personal experience in the field is that we, I remember a teacher telling us that we should never have more than one or two borderlines in our, in our practices. Mm. How 
do we better treat them now? What seems to be evolving in terms of understanding what we can really do for them? Well, it's now clear that a lot of borderline patients will get better, not necessarily because of treatment, but in a context where there's some stability and predictability to their environment, and they get themselves out of high-stress situations. That's a big lesson in terms of overall psychiatric management. While we have specialized treatments which can do a lot of good for these patients, it's not necessary as a way to be helpful. If you can be a stabilizing counselor who doesn't overreact either to their crises or to the demands, you can have a you can have a effect on these patients which is very rewarding. If you can do that, a couple patients won't burden you. If you can't do that, even one patient may be more than enough. And it seems to move away from the larger direction that psychiatry has gone in the last couple of years of looking at medication treatments for things. We're now talking about yeah. psychological treatments, psychosocial, psychoenvironmental, yeah. if there is such a term. Yes, yeah, so it's ironic that this is now legitimately a brain disorder in the sense that it is clear that there's major heritability and major problems in the neurobiology of the brain, but the treatments remain largely psychosocial. Do you think that the borderline diagnosis will eventually be relabeled, renamed, and, and might even shift from AXIS-2 to AXIS-1? Almost certainly it's going to go to AXIS-1 in DSM-5. The only question there really is whether it's going to be identified as separate from the other personality disorders. I think it should be for a lot of reasons. One is that genetically it seems to separate out. It doesn't really lend itself to being dimensionalized. It's got a lot more research about it and its diagnostic criteria should not be changed very radically. Above all, the diagnosis needs to be put in a place where it's easily accessible and facilitates use of the diagnosis rather than diminishes the use, which has been the case when it's buried within mm -hmm. the larger category of one of many personality disorders. It's the only personality disorder which is a primary target for treatment where you want to tr treat it in order to help people's depression. You want to treat it in order to help their bulimia. You want to treat it in order to help uh, their bipolar disorder rather than the other way around. It often is misdiagnosed. Uh, very frequently, someone is given the diagnosis of a bipolar disorder instead yes. of borderline. Why? Well, the bipolar diagnosis conveys a simpler and, in some ways, superficially desirable message that you have a discrete biological problem for which a medication is likely to be very helpful. Who wouldn't want to hear that? True. In contrast, the borderline diagnosis says you have a more pervasive problem, and in order to get better, you are going to have to be engaged and motivated to work on changing yourself. Ironically, if you have bipolar disorder, the chances are you're going to have a lifetime of remissions and relapses. Uh, like 90%. If you have borderline personality disorder and you go through the social learning experiences required to get remitted, 
the chances of relapsing are very small, only about 10%. That's incredible. Most people don't think that of a borderline. No. You know, most of the time, the borderlines, unfortunately, do carry the label of being difficult or intractable, intractable. difficult, uh, untreatable. They go into a hospital because they're in crisis, and it's almost like people are saying, oops, here she is again. Yes. And two days later, she's out, yeah. if that long. Yes. Well, as I noted earlier today, the uh, borderline patients themselves, when they're given the diagnosis, if they first heard about it, often on inpatient units where they hear the staff using it pejoratively, oh, and it's always the patient who's creating the most trouble on the unit, they don't want that diagnosis. If, on the other hand, there are people who get the diagnosis having been treated for other things un, uh, unsuccessfully, then it opens a window for them of hope. When they've been diagnosed with, say, bipolar disorder or major depression, the meds have multiplied, they're not effective, and there's a despair that, they, that there are no treatments available and that they're destined to have a chronic uh, illness. So for that group of borderline patients, it's very reassuring and, uh, and uh, hopeful that they get the diagnosis. I've seen that as well, and I have to agree. People are pleased to at least have a label that explains and helps give them a little bit of a sense of, um, shall we say, boundaries. Yes, and they're not alone. They're not the only people in the world like this. One of the movements in psychiatry also in the last decade or so has been to look into childhood. Um, right now there's a lot of discussion about how far back we can go in finding bipolar disorder or thought disorders. Do we have evidence of early childhood behaviors or patterns that maybe they're not to yet to the point where we can use them as predictors, but do are we beginning to see th things in early childhood that may um, result in a bipolar disorder? I'm sorry, in a borderline disorder? Yes. It's very easy to mix them up with the B, 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 P, D. Is it bipolar disorder or borderline personality? There is growing evidence that children between the age of six months and a year who have what is called disorganized attachment to their primary caretakers are at risk for the subsequent development of this disorder. This is not the kind of evidence that at this point you would take those kids uh, into a special treatment setting, but the evidence about that is the sort of thing that is getting followed up longitudinally, and it's like a risk marker. And these are children who relate unpredictably. They don't uh, call for help, and they don't they overreact or underreact when their caretaker comes and goes. Um, there are other risk factors that uh, these are people who may be parentified so that they become caretakers for their parents. Uh, they, in early adolescence, kids who start cutting already at that time are certainly at risk and maybe already should be diagnosed as borderline. Kids uh, who require and demand exclusive relationships with their peers uh, those are all signs of people who are likely to develop the disorder. And again, if I can just re reflect my own training, as I hear you say that, and I was analytically trained as well as in psychopharmacology mm -hmm. over the years, it's refreshing to hear that. It's interesting to hear that. And it's also a delight to hear that it is there is a biochemical or, or a physiologic or genetic component to this. Yes. 
So what do we do when we treat them? Uh, a lot of these folks end up on all sorts of medications. It seems yes. like that may not be really the most appropriate thing to do unless there's comorbid problems. Well, what, what the problem is is the comorbidity gets treated. And while borderline patients are severely depressed, that's being the most common by, by far, like 70% of borderline patients fit criteria for major depression, they don't respond well to medications. So that brings about more medications. And the patients themselves collude in this with their doctors. They, they, they too hope that the medications are gonna answer their problems. And once they're on medications, both the patient and the doctor are reluctant to take it away because it might make them worse. Mm -hmm. And the patient's not better. They're both fearful and about the periods of discontrol, the threat of uh, some kind of suicide. And so they're very cautious about ever taking away the ad meds. The patients get side effects. My colleague Mary Zanarini has sort of documented how polypharmacy is associated with early obesity, early onset diabetes, hypertension, lots of somatic problems and health problems, as well as the disadvantages to a predominantly young woman population in terms of having those kinds of physical handicaps in addition to their inherent feelings of being alien and less than others. One of the things also that I've noticed in the patients that I've seen or come across is a large number of them that are on antipsychotic medications. Yes. Again, I'm not quite sure if that's necessary, good. I don't know where to place that. Really. Well, there's been, a, there's been um, changes in the profile of preferred medications for borderline patients. At first, it was thought they would be antidepressants. Then there's been some move towards antipsychotics because the antidepressants really didn't do about much about the depression. The antipsychotics did more about the depression than the antidepressants. Mm -hmm. And now mood stabilizers, where the early studies did not show much benefit, are emerging as being more useful. In all instances, however, they're adjunctive. They don't do a lot. They do some good, and they make patients more available to, for social learning experiences. Now, the change that is enduring, I think, requires the psychosocial interventions. And it's refreshing to hear that because all of us who have worked with them can see the incredible importance of the psychosocial interventions in addition to everything else. Dr. John Gunderson is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard University. He is renowned in the world of dealing with borderline personality disorders. His insights and his research are very significant, sir. Thank you so very much for being with us. It's been a pleasure.